welcome to Disinformation Wars, a project of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm AFPC Senior Vice President Elon Berman. Disinformation Wars is a series of conversations with officials, experts, and practitioners designed to take you behind the scenes of the struggle for hearts and minds of global publics that's now taking place around the world. It's a contest being waged by Russia, China, Iran, and other actors, and the stakes could not be any higher. How do terrorists use and exploit the media? Who can forget the horrific images that were promulgated by the Islamic State during its short and brutal reign in Iraq and Syria more than half a decade ago? Pictures of Jordanian pilots being burned alive in cages, and of homosexuals being thrown off rooftops, shocked and terrorized the West while inspiring fellow radicals in the Muslim world. But those images were also part of a much bigger story, a story of how ISIS pioneered the use of media and social platforms, of how it used technology to promote its message to potential recruits the world over, and of how other extremist groups are now following in its footsteps and embracing a media-savvy, tech-heavy online presence as part of their operations. Last month, I sat down with Katie Zimmerman of the American Enterprise Institute to get a sense of where exactly the larger terrorism ecosystem was 20 years after the terrible attacks of September 11, 2001. I wanted to continue that conversation and focus in particular on the state of extremist media today to get a better understanding of how Islamic radicals have learned to harness social media for their own ends, what platforms they are using, and what messages are resonating with global publics. In order to do that, I turn to Aaron Saltman. Aaron is the Director of Programming at the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, a nonprofit designed to prevent terrorists and violent extremists from exploiting digital platforms. Before coming to the forum, she was Facebook's Head of Counterterrorism and Dangerous Organizations Policy for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, and in that capacity worked with NGOs and civil society groups to coordinate policy to prevent extremist groups from getting a foothold online. She holds a PhD from University College London and is one of the world's leading experts on terrorist exploitation of the media. Erin, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start at the beginning. You've done a great deal of work on the intersection of terrorism in the media and online media in particular. In it, you focused on the dynamics by which extremists exploit the internet to achieve their objectives, whether that's to promote their message, to undermine trust in public institutions, or to recruit their followers. Can you talk a little bit about the factors that make people susceptible to just this sort of outreach? Well, this is a pretty big opening question in and of itself. We could probably write a couple PhDs in response to this. It would be a lot easier for law enforcement, for practitioners, for researchers, for tech companies, I think if there was one easy profile to identify who's vulnerable to violent extremism and terrorism. There are, however, some useful ways we can see violent extremist groups, why they can be alluring for many people around the world, and maybe why it doesn't have a straightforward socioeconomic or geographic prototype of who is vulnerable. Most research traditionally focused a lot on those push factors basically those negative socioeconomic or personal factors that make you quote unquote at risk. Maybe that's the lack of social or familiar networks, the low social or economic standing that you come from. Some people have theories about absent father syndrome, uh, perhaps that you come from a marginalized religious or ethnic standing that makes you feel isolated from the mainstream. They do make you vulnerable, but I would say that push factors and grievance factors in and of themselves are not enough to make you join a violent extremist group. If we look at a really good example of a group that has all the push factors and has not mobilized into violence, 
violent extremism. You could look at the Roma population across Europe. They have all of those. They are not a violently mobilized group. So this is not enough. What we need and what people oftentimes find difficult to understand is that the pull factors, what that violent extremist group is offering you really is the hook that gets a lot of people involved. And they all sound really positive. Basically, these groups are offering a sense of belonging, these fraternal sorority and fraternity-like structures that give you an in-group. They oftentimes are tied to very strong religious or spiritual fulfillment pathways. They also give you a narrative that simplifies this really confusing world. And instead of saying, oh, the world is just nuanced and confusing, they say, no, it's clear. Here is good, here is evil, and you are part of what is good. And not only that, you are a hero and you can help us build a utopia around that theory. That is the same for white supremacy groups or Islamist extremist jihadist groups. So a successful violent extremist group really might profile you on some of those push factors, but it's how they package what they offer. And it's pretty powerful and wonderful seeming, even if it's based on a lot of misinformation or a reappropriation and distortion of history. So that's what I would say gets a lot of people, which is why there's not one profile. But I would also say there's a big profile difference between a group joiner versus a lone attacker. And so group joiners tend to have pretty normative profiles. They come from a huge range of socioeconomic backgrounds, geographies, upbringings, but lone actors really do mentally profile slightly differently. They were the outcasts. They have higher rates of mental health issues behind the scenes. So that is something for the profiles. What you described, this uh, sort of this this network of push and pull factors, those are really some of the reasons for the Islamic State success too, right? The gruesome images that we saw in the West coming out of the ISIS caliphate when it was uh, in existence were just the tip of the iceberg. What were the other kinds of messages that the Islamic State was sending to its potential adherents and just how persuasive were those messages? Absolutely, yes. Gruesome images are really the side of a terrorist strategy to create fear and coerce an enemy to make changes or to be traumatized. So that is not for their internal propaganda to recruit people usually. Those beheading videos are really made to, in this case with Daesh or ISIS, really made to intimidate the West and cause fear. Now, when you looked behind the scenes, the Islamic State's approach was very different even to other Islamist extremist jihadist groups that came before it because it allowed and actually supported during its heyday very decentralized and almost influencer-like social media and exploitation of the wonderful journey to come to Syria. You all of a sudden were inside the household. You were following women as they made the journey. You were learning about even the intimacy of when they got married, when they had children, sometimes sharing recipes of what they cooked for their husbands to give them strength for a day of battle. This was a level of intimacy with what was traditionally, if you think of a jihadist, a cloaked dark, scary, unknown, mysterious figure. So there was that decentralized media. But on top of that, ISIS had a hugely branded network and diversified network of branded content. They had 
30 something unique brands of content that catered to different language, but also different tone. So some of those brands catered to the violence and that showing of foreign terrorist fighters committing atrocities, but other sides of this were just really promoting that if you came to Syria to join the new caliphate, you would have really good national health systems and you'd be given a free house and maybe even a free washer and dryer as a consolation prize if you got married. So there was this whole other body of you, that utopia building. And I think what's really interesting about that, as somebody like myself who has also studied post-communist processes of radicalization, is a lot of that ISIS propaganda looked less like traditional jihadist propaganda and looked a lot more like Soviet propaganda of that nation state building, that utopian camaraderie and nation state building. And so I think that that really put it apart from movements that had come before it. So what about now? The ISIS caliphate is destroyed. The group is repositioning to other global theaters, and at least some of its affiliates have gone their own way. What has this meant for terrorist messaging writ large? What has changed in terms of the way ISIS and other radicals are communicating online? And what hasn't changed? What does the landscape look like now? Well, you're right. We definitely have seen a change and it is a big decrease in ISIS communications comparatively to this heyday that we could say happened maybe 2014 through 2017. The one big thing that ISIS built its brand around that set it apart was that it had a narrative that it had declared a territorial caliphate, that this was going to be the Mecca by which they spread all around the world and took over and globally dominated. That's very different to the previous Al-Qaeda messaging and strategy. Al-Qaeda had always messaged to focus on destabilizing the West, attacking Western forces before declaring a caliphate, because you needed that destabilization of your enemy before building strong foundations. ISIS flipped this on its head. So when the caliphate fell, when ultimately it became very clear that this territory was not going to keep expanding around the world and actually was being reclaimed and brought back under its rule, then a lot of that messaging of state building and utopia building really fell away. Now, we shouldn't forget that ISIS and its affiliates are still very active, both online as well as in certain regions. So we can see maybe in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and what has happened in Mozambique, where there was a takeover of small bits of territory, more recently than not. We still see trends of some of those declared affiliates to ISIS, like al-Shabaab and Boko Haram in operation. There is a decentralization of communication across platforms as well, so that extremists really have seen that they can't self-exploit in the same way. They want to now hide their affiliation and status more. That's largely because big tech companies saw the trend had to make big fixes, hire subject matter experts, build the tooling and crack down on it and work with law enforcement in some cases. Law enforcement were then able to track people because they were so openly self-exploiting online. So I think we can't say that the organization is gone. The organization will undoubtedly live on in this sort of morphing and zombie-like position. But in order to do so, it really has had to change into something else, really switching out this overt state building agenda for more covert insurgent tactics and terrorism, which again, looks more like what Al Qaeda was aiming towards before ISIS. And by early 2019, we did see a gradual winding down of official propaganda activities. Some of that was because some of those main propagandists and media editors 
perished because of attacks. Today, the majority of provincial media offices are dormant. And we saw even in 2019 productivity dropping to about 90% comparatively with the heyday, maybe in the summer of 2015. And so this, this was a big media decline. The distinction between official and unofficial material at this point since 2019 has increasingly begun to blur. So will for specialists and for academics and for law enforcement, I'm sure, it's become increasingly hard to know all the time who plays what role, who is just a fanboy or fangirl online versus a real centralized media coordinator who has details with more what is central and what is decentralized has definitely blurred even for people that would consider themselves members. And so we are still seeing this scrappiness online, but it's definitely gone increasingly across different platforms, hiding away from the larger platforms and going towards more small, decentralized and less regulated parts of the web. But as you point out, the ISIS experience has left an indelible mark on all these other groups. You're seeing more and more like Boko Haram, like Jamaat Islamiyah in Indonesia, take a page from the ISIS playbook and set up sophisticated media operations of their own to help them with recruitment, to help them with fundraising, and so on. In your estimation, who are the most capable in this new generation of extremist online actors? When you really look at terrorist content, a lot of it was not successful. A lot of it did not become trendy and spread virally. It only takes a few pieces to go viral to then have a holistic snowball effect and to make mainstream media. So I think we shouldn't discount the interplay and the staging. And so this idea of branding your accomplishments, your achievements, or even reattempting to build a narrative when you are not successful in those achievements is something that a lot of these Islamist extremist groups have gotten pretty good at. And it is also indicative of a generation gap. And there is this younger generation of maybe newer jihadists. And it's not that they were so technically savvy. It's that it has never been cheaper, easier, or quicker to build a brand, to create content, to video and edit everything, all from your phone. The amount of technology to do everything, which is normally a very good thing, but these groups have also taken a, a page from that. Between even Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab or Jamaat Islamiyah, as you mentioned, there's pretty different strategies. Some of them are more pro-tech and pro forward thinking in the online space. Some of them are still pretty wary and concerned about government tracking of them. So there isn't as much of a centralized message. Again, also because there's not that core narrative around building a caliphate, but these groups are still localizing their approach. And I think that goes back to what ISIS allowed, which was, you know, this global goal, but localized efforts and allowing it to be localized into different languages, allowing you to reflect on your own political situation, whether that's in Nigeria or Britain, and taking on that fight in whatever way you can. And we did see that as soon as the caliphate started declining, that messaging also changed away from come here physically and state build back to that traditional messaging of carry out whatever attack you can from whatever home front you find yourself in. Again, that goes back to more traditional, older Islamist extremist jihadist tactics. Okay, I want to spend a few minutes discussing the elephant in the room, namely Facebook. The social media giant is currently at the center of a public firestorm as a result of whistleblower allegations that it, in effect, promotes intolerance via its algorithms. 
and that it's shaping global politics in subtle but profound ways. You worked at Facebook for years. How valid do you think those claims are in terms of Facebook's global reach and its influence on politics? I worked specifically for the counterterrorism and dangerous organizations team. So I will have a limited ability to speak to some of these other harm types. But I can say that when you're at these tech companies, you don't have the luxury of nuance sometimes. You are being flagged a piece of content and you are having to make a decision. Do you do something with that? Do you remove that content or do you leave it up? And you don't get that binary gray space that sometimes governments or definitely academics get to sit in saying, well, it's hard. A lot of times when we think of terrorist content, we think of the beheading video. We think of the obvious thing that nobody is going to argue that an ISIS or an Al Qaeda video should not be taken down. Although even some of their content where you wouldn't argue ISIS, but they rebranded it to the point that if you are a smaller tech company or if you don't have someone really nuanced in ISIS, you don't know that that brand represents ISIS. They've nuanced it and they're just telling you they have good health programs. But I would say that if you look at the proactive efforts in this space that tech companies have employed since finding out about these trends in 2014 plus, if you look at just the community standards enforcement reports or the transparency reports of the big tech, including Facebook, the amount of proactive work that they are doing to surface review and remove this content, and in many cases also build programs to counteract it, is much more than any one government flagging body has the capacity for. I, I did in preparation for our conversation, since I thought it might come up, have a look at the most recent transparency report that Facebook put out just on dangerous organizations, because again, I'm not gonna <laughs> pretend I'm an expert in some of these other fields, but just in the second quarter of 2021, they removed 7.1 million pieces of content actioned on their dangerous organization's terrorism policy. That's in one quarter. So a lot of that is proactive. And then they go above and beyond that when their policies on hate-based organizations and had removed 6.2 million pieces of content for being attached to organized hate. And when you think of those numbers, when I talk to Europols or Interpols or different internet referral units around the world, they are flagging hundreds of crucial pieces of content. They are in essence at this point flagging what companies miss. That's important because that has an amplifying effect. If you flag one piece of content, maybe a tech company missed, and then they can put that in their database of known content, that can be used to proactively surface maybe another 500 pieces. But they're at the point where if you look at removals in this sort of area, almost 99% of what they remove is internal efforts, not external. So I guess for me, it's not that there isn't more that should be done. And it's not that there aren't concerns. I think even the Facebook colleagues I still communicate with, nobody's saying we've cracked it. We've solved all the social ills. We know how to do online engagement in this space without any harm taking place. It's not that, but it is really crucial to maybe empathize with why this is so difficult. Thank you for that. And I think it's important to recognize that there's a lot going on on the part of these tech companies in terms of preventing ill and in terms of tracking and watching extremist activity that the general public really doesn't get to, a chance to see. But what we are seeing, at least in the public eye right now, is a move towards greater regulation, greater scrutiny of Facebook specifically, but I think in the weeks ahead, we're going to see a broader push towards more regulation more broadly of tech companies. 
So what exactly should be done with social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, which often appear, at least to the general public, to act unaccountably and sometimes in partisan political ways? Is there a way to promote better governance writ large, recognizing that they are acting as good cyber citizens in some ways? Absolutely. I think that nobody is thinking that legislation is in the perfect place to help identify or handle what tech has brought to the forum. First of all, social media hasn't existed all that long, and it has definitely changed the way that we communicate, the way that we operate. Again, it has made things faster, cheaper, in many cases free to amplify messaging. Now, this same technology is what has allowed for a lot of very globally known grassroots efforts to find voice. Uh, bring back our girls. Je suis Charlie. If you look at the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter and everything in between, it's using all the same tools and tactics. So one thing I would always say in this space is always be aware of the trade-offs. If you regulate solving for one thing, what is going to be that causal effect that it might affect something in a way that you didn't intend? The three pillars that we see clashing right now uh, when we talk to our stakeholders at the Global Internet Forum to counter terrorism, is that we are seeing legislation that is either solving for privacy, security, or free speech. And every government in its history has had to navigate where their laws sit between those three pillars. And that looks very different in different parts of the world. And tech companies operate globally. They are attempting to do the impossible. They are attempting to have a global policy because ultimately, if you are based in America and you see this cute piece of content in Australia and you send it to me and I live in Singapore, what jurisdiction is that? And so again, I think tech companies are having to face the impossible and regulation works really well when the regulation focuses on what the goal should be, not on the mechanisms to get there. Because when government tends to focus on the mechanation, tech companies know mechanation online better than governments. Governments have a really strong case when they get a good articulation of what the endpoint is meant to be so that tech companies can then look at their own platform and say, okay, how am I going to get there? Anything that's overly prescriptive tends to become outdated pretty quickly in the online space. And by the way, there are terrorist and harms related regulation that affects things like violent extremism online right now in the UK with harms bills in Australia, but also in the Philippines and Burkina Faso. Everyone wants to regulate. Some of this regulation is very prescriptive, all the way down to the amount of time you're allowed to take in reviewing and removing. Some of it is about giving law enforcement greater access to data of users. Do we trust which government is given that? So again, sometimes we also see Western governments making their own legislation for their own nation state, and then in another part of the world that maybe has less human rights and less democracy, they go, okay, well, you did that and I wanna do the same and here's how I'm defining terrorism. And this starts getting into some pretty muddy water that has a lot of the human rights groups that we talk with very concerned. We do have a legal frameworks working group that meets once a month just to bring up some of these issues and try to help tech companies understand what their legal obligations are gonna be because we are starting to see legislation that contradicts itself coming from different parts of the world. Uh, and so, I would say that with caution, yes, regulation in 
good cases can guide companies to get to a better place, but without understanding the tech companies, why it might be difficult for them. And also that we shouldn't regulate thinking of only two or three tech companies in mind. Aaron, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Disinformation Wars. To learn more about the American Foreign Policy Council and our work on public diplomacy, visit us online at www.afpc.org. And as always, we hope you'll join us again next time.